Hey everyone, welcome to the 106th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Dan and I got Brian here with me. How you doing, Brian? Hey Dan, we're just about in the thick of December. Temperature, still it's warm some days and frosty other days, but I guess that's the climb, as Miley Cyrus says. <laughs> is that short for the climate, or is that like the climbed? Climb is a word, C-L-I-M-E. Okay. Love knows no season, love knows no climb. Romance can blossom any old time, Dan, as the song says. A region considered with reference to its climate. Huh. Perhaps seen that word, but uh, never used it before. Well, uh, you're right. We are approaching the season, or whatever you want to call it, the holiday time. Getting near Christmas. We watched both How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Chuck Jones one, and the Charlie Brown Christmas in the past week. And so I am feeling a little bit festive. And for the goods, we selected a holiday themed film, although it really has a lot going on with this. So I I had found this this movie very curious about it, just based on the log line, just based on the pitch. And so I asked Brian to watch it so we could discuss it this week. And this is the 2017 film Anna and the Apocalypse. So, Brian, you had never heard of this one going into this week. Is that right? No, I'm curious. How did you come across it? I honestly don't remember. Um, I have a letterboxed list of movies I might pick for the pod at some point. Or I don't even know how I found it. But it was stumbled upon it in letterboxed and, and saved it. So, yeah, pretty interesting. So, the, I haven't even said what the premise is. So, the premise is, this is a Christmas movie. This is a musical. This is a comedy, sort of a horror comedy, sort of. Uh, It's a John Hughes-esque teen drama. And it's a zombie movie, a full on zombie movie, too. I had Paul Rudd ringing in my head. Do less. (laughs) Kunu will be your instinct. Do less. The less you do, the more you do. Yeah, this has got a lot going on with it, so... Another thing I did not know until I hit play and then I very quickly learned when I heard the characters talk is that this is a British film. In fact, it is a Scottish film. Yeah, I started it up and like it it opens. There's like a car driving down the road and there's a bunch of people in the car. It's like, wow, this is a 2017 movie and everybody in the car is white. It's like, oh, it's not an American film. Once (laughs) they start talking. Yeah, I found it to be very British, not just the accents, but. There's something about like the sensibilities of the British that are just a little bit different. And every beat and character just felt a little different from what I would expect that version to have been if this were an American film. Did you get any of that, Brian? Did it ever feel just a little off to you because of that? A couple things about the Britishness is that when they were singing, the accents bothered me like more than when they were talking. Hmm. I just, I don't know. I wanted them to say their R's when they sang. <laughs> but it's its like, no, close, close your words. Say your ending consonants. <laughs> and the other thing that stuck out to me just repeatedly, the whole movie, 
was I kept thinking this is like Shaun of the Dead, but it isn't Shaun of the Dead. It's like not quite there. I think that is 100% true. I thought Shaun of the Dead over and over again. I mean, just the basic shape of the tone where it goes from like more comedy, like less zombie with zombie as kind of the flavor to a proper zombie movie by the second half. It's just very Shaun of the Dead-esque. And there's one bit in here that is basically ripped wholesale from Shaun of the Dead that we'll get to. One of the musical numbers. I'm definitely with you there. But I had my own little epic quest in trying to watch this movie. So I, as I often do when I pick a movie, wanted to know what were the the DVD releases of this and what kind of features were included on the DVD. So... I learned that there was a British release of a special edition Blu-ray. So the special edition Blu-ray was two discs. It included a extended cut that was 10 minutes longer. It included a feature length making of documentary, two other deleted songs and a few other things on it. And I was like, all right, this would be cool to track down. I only have a week to do it but let's see if I can do it. So I found it on Amazon Prime. There was a vendor selling it on Amazon Prime. So I was able to get it within a couple of days of our last recording. And then I watched a streaming version I found so that I only had to watch the the bonus features on the Blu-ray. And so I was ready to do it. I was like, all right, let's watch this. Well, it, it turns out that my Blu-ray player doesn't play it. Did you get the European region? Exactly. Yeah. So rookie mistake, Dan. Well, here's the thing that I wasn't thinking about is it's a Blu-ray. So if it were a DVD, I have a region free DVD player. I mean, essentially, my computer is the region free DVD player. I just have a piece of software that bypasses any region coding when I play it on my computer. And I have a USB DVD player and I almost always just buy the DVD, not the Blu-ray. But in this case, the only release was as a Blu-ray. And so I I couldn't do that on my computer. So what did I have to do? I went out to Best Buy and got a Blu-ray USB player so that I could basically do the same thing that I would do with DVDs, but with the Blu-ray on my computer. So I did manage to finally watch it on my computer off the Blu-ray. I did catch up with the director's commentary and the extended cut and the making of documentary and the bonus features. So I guess you could say I watched this three times through once the American theatrical cut, once the British theatrical cut, which is very similar, but just like a couple minutes longer with like a couple of added uh, establishing shots and dialogue cues, but with the director's commentary. And then I watched the extended cut, which adds about 10 minutes on to that British cut. So I kind of like when we watched Snow Day last year, I put my dues in on this one. Wow. So you've got the full experience, truly. Yeah. And the making of documentary, which was almost an hour and a half, too. So, But I did learn a lot from it, and it definitely increased my appreciation a little bit for it. So I, I learned a little bit about the, the production history of this. So um, the idea came from a college student in Scotland named Ryan McHenry and he was watching high school musical and he had the thought while he was watching it. And, uh, you know, 
I learned all these things from the documentary and the director's commentary. So just imagine people with accents saying these things like thick accents and like a very sardonic way of saying things that he basically recounting that this this guy, Ryan McHenry, had observed that, man, High School Musical would be a lot more interesting if Zac Efron got eaten by a zombie in the middle of it. And they kind of had a laugh about it and he slept on it. He's like, you know what? I got to I'm in film school. So he, he was in film school in college. I got to make a project for this semester. I'm just going to make a zombie high school musical. And so that was what his project was. He made a 15 minute short called Zombie Musical that was actually included on the the Blu-ray. And I also found it on YouTube. That was kind of like the rough draft of what Anna and the Apocalypse would become. Although it didn't have the Christmas theme in that incarnation. That, that came only when they were turning it into feature length. They decided they didn't have enough genres in there. Yeah, they got to get more there. It's missing something. <laughs> and he basically went around to film festivals and gave DVDs of his film to different indie publishers saying, hey, I want to turn this into a feature length film. Take a watch. And if you think it's a good idea, work with me. We'll make it. And he got someone to bite uh, a, a little publisher local to him put up the funding to make this film. So it's actually a pretty low budget, but, um, and I think that shows mostly in the zombie stuff. It's not like, uh, keeping up with the best of the Hollywood zombie movies, but yeah, a little bit in how the musical numbers are shot too. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But the kind of sad side of that is, uh, that, that original creator, Ryan McHenry, he passed away fairly early into the production of the musical but gave his blessing for it to continue. He, he got a form of cancer and passed away. So he did not get to see it to completion. And if you watched past the ending stinger at the end of the movie, it had a little uh, in memoriam message to Ryan McHenry. So that was th this guy who who did the original short film and, and kind of created the, the pitch in the first place. So, um, yeah, that was... Uh, the backstory of Anna and the Apocalypse came out in 2017. Um, the the feature length version that is. Any other thoughts on on this movie before we we jump into it, Brian? Well, two quick things, I guess. One is I did track down this short from 2011 and watch that. And this movie, and then even more, the short had me thinking about how in. I think it was late 2010, like November 2010. I made my first college film and it was a zombie comedy. I think the original was made in 2011. So it would have been right around that time. Yeah, that's what I said. I oh, think, sorry. I think, well, I don't know. I think we said that if we didn't. Yes, very much lined up. But that's where my head went. The other thing is that one year after Annie and the Apocalypse, we got another zombie musical, Dan. <laughs> we got Zombies 1 on the Disney Channel, so maybe there's some uh, intellectual, or what do they say, corporate espionage Yeah, I, at work. Somehow I doubt it, both because <laughs> they're wildly different projects and because I'm not sure Disney would be spying on little Scottish filmmaker. but On Black Camel Films? Yeah, or whatever it is. Addison and the Apocalypse. <laughs> uh, also, this one 
does not have any zombies singing. So very different from the zombies that, that we came to love from 2018. Oh, true. Shall I hop into the plot then? Yeah, why not? So this movie, as Brian mentioned, opens with a car ride. Uh, there's a, a song playing on the radio called Christmas Means Nothing Without You. This is actually an original to this musical, but it actually sounds like something you might hear on the radio, I thought, like a, a Christmas pop song. I don't know if you, if you noticed that one, Brian. I noticed the song a little bit. Also, the credits, like the opening and ending credits have these like stick figure animations that are like notebook doodles. And it had me thinking of like Napoleon Dynamite specifically, but I feel like there was this whole trend in like the 2000s of notebook doodles as an aesthetic. Yeah. Like if you're making a, a f high school film, that's what your go-to look for titles is going to be. And I don't know if the one that you saw on, did you watch it on YouTube? The, the original short? Yes. Yes, I did. Did that also have the notebook doodles intro in that too? Yep. So it's fresh in my mind because I just had that queued up. And that one like really leaned into it. It had like a 3D camera pivot on the doodles. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it like does the matrix in the notebook. Yeah. We meet a couple of the key players here in this opening scene. So Anna, of course, is the protagonist. She's a high school senior. She's played by an actress named Ella Hunt, who has been pretty productive since this. She appeared in Broadway and she's been in a couple of smaller movies, too. And she is facing a dilemma about what to do when she graduates. And she, her best friend is there. So her, her best friend is named John. And he is like the stereotypical best friend of a girl, but like not even secretly at all madly in love with her, but unrequited love. And it's like the movie's going to interrogate their best friend versus maybe a romance dynamic that we've seen plenty of times in at least movies that I've picked for the pod, Brian. Mm -hmm. But we learn that she's planning to take a gap year and go and travel in Australia. At least that's her plan. But this is not popular with either John, who, of course, wants her to stick around because he's going to be sticking around or with her dad, who thinks she should go straight to college and get her education. And then we also get something that I think is stereotypical of zombie movies where we hear a little bit of a radio broadcast it's like, boy, how about that crazy disease that turns everyone into zombies in the, the background of the radio broadcast? Yeah. And then inevitably change the channel. Right. It's, I mean, that goes all the way back to Night of the Living Dead, at least. Um, they get to school and we, we meet the other characters. And I do think that's something that is pretty well developed in the movie is like the characters are pretty well formed, although they don't have as much to do like really developing and interacting with each other and establishing those relationships just because there's so many balls in the air at any one time. It's like I didn't necessarily get a sense of what the relationship between all these characters were other than a couple of them. But one character who I thought was well acted, but I have no idea why she was featured so so prominently is this girl named Steph. And she is an American who I, I guess she's 
it's almost like a boarding school for her here in Scotland. And she like is an aspiring filmmaker, but she's feeling really isolated in the holidays being away from home. And I think she has a girlfriend back at home. And so she's kind of having this homesickness and angst. And she is played by Sarah Swire, who has appeared in, in a couple other things I've seen. The main one being God Help the Girl, which I mentioned in my favorite movie songs several months ago now, which had uh, I'll Have to Dance with Cassie, which is a song I really love. Anyways, that that actress um, plays Steph. A couple of other characters. We got a D-bag boyfriend because you always got to have a D-bag boyfriend. It's this jock named Nick. And one thing this movie does that is probably realistic, but always bothers me is all of the characters have really generic names. You got Steph and Anna and Nick and Chris and Lisa. And so I'm sure I'm going to say the wrong one at some point if I haven't already. It's just they're too generic. Right. It kind of is hard to keep track. Yeah. But yeah, he's the douchebag ex-boyfriend of Anna. They recently had a bad breakup. There's this these two others who are, appear to be in the friend group. One of them is named Chris. And so he's helping Steph out with this film that she's making. And then there's Lisa, whose main role is as the girlfriend of Chris. And she really just gets one moment to shine. And that's this uh, song that we're going to hear in a few minutes at at the, the Christmas talent show. The last two main characters are Anna's dad, who's a janitor at the school, I think. Or he like, I don't know, he does some sort of blue collar thing at the school. And then the tyrannical new headmaster named Mr. Savage, Arthur Savage, which is a great name, by the way, for a villain. The teens have generic names, but Arthur Savage for the villain of a Christmas movie is a great name. I agree with that. And the big thing, Brian, is that this the name of this actor is Paul K. It's not going to mean anything to our listeners, but a good friend of both of us is named Paul K., and I think he would have been good in this part. <laughs> I think this movie would have been a good fit for the Paul K that we know. But unfortunately, this is not him in the role. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a slight weirdo energy about him. Uh, kind of goofy. Would have fit in, I think. But yeah, it got to the end credits. I was like, what? Paul K? That's hilarious. I got to bring that up. But it's not going to land because... None of the people listening know who that is, probably. Also known as Freak Slice, if you've watched Brian's show, Count Conley. Right, if you want to look it up. We'll drop it in the Discord. Find our Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. Anyways, that's kind of our cast here, and the movie picks up on, I guess it's one of the last days before Christmas at the school. So there's a couple things going on. Anna has to go work with... John, her friend, they both work at this bowling alley named Thunderballs, which one thing I learned from the director's commentary is they were very proud of this joke of naming the bowling alley Thunderballs. And they even had like a custom neon sign made for it that you can see. That's what I was going to say is it is impressive that they went to the trouble of making this big sign. Yeah. And meanwhile, like I mentioned, they have a, a Christmas talent show going on at the school where Lisa is performing a Santa baby type song where the main purpose is to be horny and have lots of 
entendres in it. It also reminded me of Let's Duet from Walk Hard. I don't know if you thought of that at all, Brian, but it's like just being sleazy for Santa is the theme. And Right. Every line is raunchy. It's also kind of like the Jingle Bell Rock performance in Mean Girls. Funny you should mention that because they mentioned in the commentary that that was one of the inspirations. They liked the beat of the the teens doing the inappropriate song at the Christmas talent show. So they brought that in too. And so the next morning they are headed to school. In particular, we, we trace uh, Anna and her friend John. And this is where we get the beat that is ripped directly from Shaun of the Dead. So one of the best moments of Shaun of the Dead is Sean, the uh, the protagonist of that one, is kind of living his life in a depressive funk where every single day is the same and he goes about his routine and he doesn't realize all the zombie carnage around him. And basically that exact thing happens here, except instead of being a depressed 20 something who where every day is the same, they just have popped their earphones in and are listening to a pop song and dancing around to the to the pop song. Right, so the whole thing is also a musical number. I thought this was the best part of the movie, this song, because, yeah, John and Anna are, like, making their way across the city towards the school, and so eventually they convene, but in the background, all the zombie stuff is going on, and they meet up in a cemetery, like a real cemetery, and then they're dancing through the rows of graves, and I think... Not enough zombie movies actually feature cemetery scenes. Quite a few do, but there, I would say there's like half of zombie movies. They they feel like maybe they've moved beyond it. Like maybe a cemetery scene is too cliche. But let me tell you, no zombie film is too highbrow for a cemetery scene. Like, don't be too big for your britches, zombie cinema. Just do it. Just commit to using people's real final resting places for your schlocky film. Yeah, I mean, I guess Night of the Living Dead, the original zombie movie, has its iconic opening scene at a graveyard. So you maybe you're right. Maybe they're like, oh, it's, it's the cliche. Everyone thinks of they're coming to get you. Is it Margaret? What's her name? I forget. Barbara. Barbara. They're coming to get you, Barbara. And that's at a... I think that actually happens at the graveyard. But anyways, that's like part of the DNA of zombie movies. But in this case, the zombies aren't actually the dead coming back to life, but they are alive people who get sick. So the graveyard doesn't really present a threat very much, I guess. I don't think that's ever explained necessarily. Well, I guess I'm just inferring that from the fact that we hear about a super virus over the radio and like, when humans get bit, they have like a couple minutes until they turn into a zombie. Like that's a beat that we see a few times. I guess that's true. I mean, I guess that doesn't exclude reanimation. But one thing I learned in the commentary is that the graveyard they shot in, they actually didn't initially plan to shoot that number in a graveyard. But somebody on the day of filming this number was like, hey, you know, we're like five minutes away from a graveyard and... It's public property graveyard, so we don't need a permit to shoot there. So do you just want to go shoot some footage at the graveyard? And they did it, and they ended up including it and liking it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I like that. At last, they realize that zombiness is afoot, despite being oblivious for a song about it. And they 
rush over instead of going to the school, they go over to the the bowling alley. So one thing that I that struck me about this movie, I don't know if you got the sense, Brian, is I didn't really get a good sense of distinction between the different settings because the school has like three or four different areas within the school. But then also the bowling alley doesn't look all that different from the school itself. And so I got confused a couple times about where people were in relationship to each other. Hmm. Interesting. It does cut back and forth between the two groups. I thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know that I got confused space-wise, but something that we know that the characters don't is that these two groups of characters are both alive. So the people who are in each location are like wondering who else is left. Like, you know, Chris and Lisa are like, oh, is Anna and John still alive? And Anna and John are saying, oh, I wonder if your dad, the janitor, is still alive. And they don't know, but we know. Yeah. And Anna and John bump into a couple of other other friends who are at the bowling alley. I think Steph and Chris, so the two that had been making the movie, are there, too. So, yeah, you have like the lovers who are separated, Chris and uh, his girlfriend who sang the Santa baby song, I think, are, are separated. But yeah. Oh, right. Right. And we get a zombie fight scene at the bowling alley where they're like throwing bowling balls around. There's one effect that I like where the head of a zombie comes out of the bowling ball machine. You know, like the ball automatically returns to you, the return machine. It's like a zombie head comes rolling out of that and makes like a, a, a clonk noise when it hits the, the other bowling balls. <laughs> they did a couple good gags with the disembodied head. It was not quite to the level of idle hands, but there was a little bit of how'd they do that? They decide at some point that they're going to head back over to the school where you're right. There's like a lot of our other characters are at the school, but they're kind of bunkering. They're kind of hunkering down bunkering down and so the way they decide they're going to get over there i thought was pretty funny maybe the thing that actually made me laugh the hardest is they take a a ball pit so for whatever reason there's a ball pit at the bowling alley and they dump the balls out of it and it's essentially like i guess an inflatable pool or something at this point it's like this big piece of plastic that's shaped like a, a circle or like a rounded rectangle or something and they put it over them and then they kind of squat down and it, it's like a Looney Tunes thing almost. They're like creeping very slowly with this thing over them and the zombies are too stupid. So they don't really notice what's going on, that there's like this blob going because they don't see the humans, you know, because it's it's covered by this until finally one of the zombies does notice it. And he like <laughs> goes and sits on the the thing and pees on it. And they're talking about, oh, I can feel the the warm zombie pee on top of it. And I thought this whole thing where they were going in the, the ball pit over their head was pretty funny. Yeah, it was a good idea. It's kind of like the Roman Tetsudo formation. You just got the guard on top of them that they're carrying around like an impromptu tank. And here they bump into the D-bag ex-boyfriend who is not at the school or the bowling alley. He, he's been out and about. And he gets a little number about it. he and his mates, you know, they're like field hockey or something out of some British sport. They're they're athletes and they love fighting the zombies. So they have this number for that. 
Um, I'm going to talk through the numbers at the end a little bit more about what some of the highlights and lowlights were for me, but I thought that was a pretty good one. It had some good action. A lot of the kills are here in this song. Right, like swinging their the sticks and knocking heads off, and yeah. Eventually, they decide to go through a Christmas tree lot. It's like a imagine like if you go to a parking lot of a grocery store and they have Christmas trees for sale. It's that, but apparently, it's I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be interior or not. It wasn't one hundred percent clear to me. But this is where we kind of get some of the holiday flavor, because now they're going to go through this this tree lot and zombies are going to be popping up between the trees and branches and stuff. I thought this was like a fun setting for some of the, the zombie chase scenes. Yeah, it had me wondering what other Christmas horror films have you seen, Dan? That's a good point. The answer is I can't think of any. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know Black Christmas is like a slasher that's set at Christmas, but I don't know how Christmassy it is. Were there any that you had in mind, Brian? Well, the one I was specifically thinking of was Krampus from 2015, which it like has a lot of Christmas stuff in it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very Christmassy Christmas horror film. Okay. Uh in there are like killer jack in the boxes and gingerbread cookies and stuff and oh fun it's 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 wacky but some of the beats here had me thinking of that one yeah i think it could have used a little bit more of that type of stuff because the christmas factor doesn't really play that much of a role i would say i mean you would barely have to rewrite it at all to completely eliminate the christmas aspect of it so like it could just be a regular talent show and instead of being set at a Christmas tree farm or a Christmas tree lot, it could be set at a shopping mall or some other building, you know, but there is a little bit of flavor. Like she has this giant candy cane that she's swinging around, whacking the zombies with. That's kind of fun. Right. And it's even on the poster. Right. And like idle hands, this movie had a lot of like head injuries caused by things I don't think could actually cause head injuries. I mean, maybe you could do like a blunt force trauma thing, but like, well, in the, in the student short, he like stabs like a table leg into somebody's head. I feel like there's quite a bit of that people getting stabbed in, in heads. I don't think it would be that easy to stab something into somebody's head. Dan. a skull is a hard thing. I agree. The way that I've always explained away that type of beat in a zombie movie is that maybe the the zombie disease or the zombification process like breaks down your tissues and your bones or something. So you're you're much more brittle. Sure. It makes your skull soft. Something like that. Yeah. Reverse fontanelle or whatever. Yeah. No, what it had me thinking of, though, was the, like, oh, you got a license for that meme where it's, like, impossible to have any kind of weapon in England. Oh, interesting. Like, they'll take away your screwdriver or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, no guns here. And no blades, really, either. So just when it seems as if they have kind of hit a moment of safety... Anna and John are kind of having a heart to heart where he kind of is like, hey, are you sure you want to go to Australia? Wouldn't you want to stay here with me? And she says, John, you're my best friend. 
you hear that friend and it's like in the simpsons you can pinpoint the moment where his heart breaks into or whatever it is with uh ralph and lisa but it's only a couple of minutes later when uh john gets bit by a popping out horde of zombies well guess i'll die (laughs) i wonder how many movies have had a well guess i'll die for us he sacrifices himself so that Anna and the others can escape. And Anna, heartbroken, maybe she had more feelings than she realized for him now that he's gone. Tough to say. He gets beat pretty bad at that point, though. He gets eaten up by like a, a group of them, which most of the stuff we saw wasn't quite that grisly and bloody. Yeah, that had a little bit of like the classic Tom Savini gore. Yeah, like intestines or whatever. Mm hmm. Like Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead. Now, it's right around this time in the extended version where it cuts away to a scene that I think is necessary that they probably shouldn't have cut. Where I don't think it was in the the theatrical cut I saw. They basically have a song between the dad and the headmaster about whether they're going to use the school to let others in like a sanctuary for people on the outside or whether they're going to go into complete lockdown. And the headmaster really wants to be a tyrant and go into complete lockdown. And the dad wants to have it be more of a safe sanctuary. And I think this is important because you need, first of all, down the line, it's going to be important that the dad and the headmaster are rivals which you get a little bit of, but not too much of if you don't have that song. Yeah, you just don't really know why it's happening. And second of all, it's kind of the moment where the headmaster goes from petty tyrant to like break bad into villain, which will kind of escalate as the movie goes. But it's missing that one moment where he like kind of snaps, I would say, if you don't have that. Did you get the impression that he kind of broke bad a little too fast, Brian? Yeah, I just thought he was a weirdo. Yeah. He's got this crazy beard and like big glasses and wild eyes. British teeth. Right. And he's got these really long, lanky legs. He does like some rocket kicks and like puts his leg up really weird on tables and stuff. But back with the teens who are trying to make it to the school, we get the moment of redemption for the D-bag boyfriend, ex-boyfriend who... Spoilers, he makes it to the end. If you're going to have a a teen zombie movie, setting aside the other genres, just you're doing a teen drama as a zombie movie and you got a douchebag ex-boyfriend, you're priming us up to feel the catharsis of the douchebag boyfriend dying. And he doesn't die. And I felt a little cheated by that, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, well... Even the characters who do die, we at least check in with them at the end of the film, which I kind of liked. That was I liked that moment, too. Yeah. Another thing that was in the extended edition that I'm pretty sure was not in the theatrical edition or I was zoning out when it happened. But there's a, a fight scene like right when they get to the school and there's like zombies in the hall and Anna's swinging around her candy cane and it's kind of doing like slow mo fight stuff with her. And in the background, a narrator is reading The Night Before Christmas. Was that in the version you saw, Brian? It doesn't ring a bell. 
Yeah, so I kind of like that. I wish that they had included it. It's like a little more holiday flavor. Um, it was a cool scene. I'm, I'm surprised out of all the stuff that they kept, they, that they cut that, because it seemed like the kind of thing that you could just play on YouTube and it'd be kind of cool. But, oh well. One thing I haven't mentioned here is that the movie kind of circles around this theme of teens being too obsessed with their phones and their technology. There's kind of one song that's built around it. I didn't think this theme really registered very hard, but I guess the payoff for it is the scene here. So we have um, after they get to the school, the boyfriend and girlfriend reunite and they're going to sneak out away from the zombie horde by turning on some of the footage that remember the boyfriend, Chris, he's like the cameraman for Steph, the American who's making the documentary. And so he's got like footage on his camera. I think it's on his phone. I can't remember. And he's hitting play and that's distracting the zombies so they can sneak out. But then the phone dies and the zombies are like, huh? And they look up, they see Chris and Lisa and they chomp them. And so Chris and Lisa turn into zombies in each other's arms. But it was kind of interesting there how they like took the whole filmmaking footage thing as well as this technology theme and had that be the last stand for these characters. I, I feel like they wanted to do something more interesting than what we actually got with it. Yeah, it felt very abrupt. Uh, if the reveal is that like a movie is enough to distract the zombie hordes, like, you know, what is that saying about us as filmgoers? And it's it's almost like some kind of barb and commentary, but it shows up so quickly and is gone just as quickly that it doesn't really mean anything if it's intended to. Yeah, I completely agree. Also, when Chris and Lisa die, there was a song at the beginning called No Such Thing as a Hollywood Ending, where basically all the characters are saying things that they are unhappy about in their lives. And the two of them are like, well, we're already happy. We have exactly what we want. We're boyfriend and girlfriend, and we're just happy clams. And they've found their Hollywood ending. Oh, quite literally. Yeah. Right. So, Well, so now here they are both dead here at the end. And it's like, oh, perfect. As they're dying, they're going to reprise the song. But they didn't, Dan. They just died. Oh, they didn't? What? Hold on, I thought... They reprised the song later. Oh. And it's they're not singing it. You're right. That would have been perfect if they had done it right at that moment. Yeah. That's a good call, Brian. I like that, that edit, that rewrite. At some point, Anna is able to track down her dad and who should be with her dad but Mr. Savage, the crazy headmaster. Arthur Savage is a really good name. I don't know if they say that enough in the film. I know. He's just the headmaster, but yeah, I like Arthur Savage. He's kind of, he's tied up Anna's dad. I guess the idea is he's like using the dad as bait so that he can run away. All the zombies will go to the tied up dad and then he can run away. Not entirely clear. Arthur Savage has basically just gone crazy at this point. So I'm not 100% clear on what the plan was but here we're at the climax and it's back in the auditorium where the talent show was and it's anna and her dad and the headmaster mr savage so it does the beat where 
I'm trying to think like what are the iconic examples of this where basically the noble guy has won the fight and he turns his back. So Anna's dad has kind of won the fight and they're like, all right, we can all survive, including you, even though you're my nemesis and turns his back on Mr. Savage, who then tries to stab him in the back. But just in time, he falls into the horde of zombies and he kind of like Christ-like with his arms spread, like descends into the, the mass and gets eaten. What did you think of this guy's ending here, Brian? Well, I liked that it was foreshadowed because at the start of the movie, before there's any zombie stuff, there's occasional beats of horror movie style editing, both visual and audio. You know, there'll be like that low frequency hum, like just a menacing things. You know it when you see it, just like horror beats. And one is when they're doing the rehearsals for this talent show, this thing like drops from the rafters and swings out and the headmaster just barely dodges it. And it's accompanied by one of those like jump scare tones. And then here, of course, he gets hit by it at the end and it knocks. That's what knocks him into the zombies. He gets taken out. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty good. But. In the scrum, it appears that Anna and her dad have both survived, but of course we have the moment where Anna's dad lifts up his sleeve. I forget if it's a pant leg or his sleeve on his shirt, and we see that he's been bitten. So he's about to turn into a zombie. So he and Anna have their their farewell. Now, I thought in the theatrical version that this was a little bit underwhelming. Like we had the opening scene where they clashed, but we didn't really have a strong sense of their relationship. But one of the cut songs, so there were three songs that were cut. One of them took place basically right after they got to school and was going to be the dad and the daughter um, singing about how their relationship has changed over time. And, you know, uh, what's still there. And the name of that song um, was going to be Some Things Will Never Change. And I really wish they had kept this. They said they cut it because they felt like it slowed down the beginning of the movie too much. But I really feel like we didn't get enough of the relationship between dad and Anna without that song. I think I agree. The dad feels like he was just kind of calling for more development overall. Yeah. But now we're kind of hitting the falling action of the film and we get uh, what you mentioned a bit ago, where we cut around to all the characters and see their fates. Uh, we see the two lovers who have turned into zombies and are hobbling around. We see John, who is in way better shape than I would have expected from his death. Like he's got a little bit of gore makeup on, but he still is like one piece, you know? Yeah, he's intact. But what I loved about this cutaway to John is that he has this goofy Christmas sweater that lights up. And even as a zombie, he's setting it off and like chuckling at it. <laughs> yeah, they talked a little bit about the prop of that sweater. Apparently the director, so we haven't said the director's name, is this guy named John McPhail. Which McPhail is a pretty rough last name to have, I have to say. It's like if you're saying it out loud. It's spelled P-H-A-I-L, but it's pronounced John McPhail, according to the way they're pronouncing it in the, the documentary and in the 
commentary, but he had a very specific vision for what this sweater would look like. And they scoured the internet, they scoured thrift stores, and they couldn't find what he wanted, which was basically like very clearly a Christmas tree that could light up when you touched a button. So they ended up having to make it. So the, what they did is they they got two sweaters. One was plain and one was a Christmas tree. And on the plain one, they added in some lights and they wired the lights together. And so the actor who played John would put that sweater on and then he would put the Christmas tree sweater on top of it, which had holes in the right spot so that the lights would light up. And he said he hated wearing that sweater because it was so hot. You're like filming indoors and you have to, you have to be wearing two sweaters and, you know, you're like running around a lot and singing and doing multiple takes. He said he was sweating the entire time. But I agree that sweater. So that's like one of John's signature thing is this basically this whole movie. He's wearing that one ugly light up sweater. Well, I'm glad that John, whoever the actor was, that he put up the sacrifice. He went that extra mile to wear the the custom sweater, two custom sweaters. Now, the, the D-bag boyfriend at this point, so he had a I don't know if I mentioned this, but he kind of had his redemption moment where he admitted that he had to kill his own zombified dad and he kind of is like, all right, I'm going to let you escape. And he appears to sacrifice himself to let Anna escape, but he survives. Apparently he, he fought down the entire horde by himself. And now he and Anna reunite. Like they stumble out of the school together and it looks like the zombies are kind of enclosing on them when who should appear but Steph, the American girl who in an earlier scene had had her car keys confiscated by the headmaster. Well, she got him back. She drives in. She rescues Nick, the ex-boyfriend and Anna. And the three of them drive off with these kind of uncertain looks on their face about what's going to happen next. And that's how the movie ends, except you're right. They have like a little doodle style credit sequence, which is kind of cool. It like introduced all the characters and it had like a cartoonified doodle version of them. So you knew who it was as it showed. It's like it's got the ugly sweater for the guy who played John, etc. And just before we cut to the credits, we get the jump scare stinger, which is that uh, like a banner kind of flies. And then when it goes past the camera, Santified zombie pops up and it does the jump scare string thrum or whatever. That's how Anna and the Apocalypse from 2017 ends. So, Brian, before we get to our our is it good section, our, our trademark rating section, I had a few other things I wanted to kind of talk through. OK. About Anna and the Apocalypse. Since I did my homework, I could share my homework. Yeah, I think I read that Zombie Santa was originally going to be more prominent. Is that accurate? Yes. So this is one thing that I am bummed. I think they dropped the ball. So they had a opener and they even shot some or all of it because it was on the DVD, although not as an uncut deleted scene, like they had commentary over it. But they wrote this one song called What a Time to Be Alive. And it's it was going to be a true opener. So before the scene where we have the car ride where we meet Anna and her dad and her friend, 
And what it was going to do is it was going to follow a drunk Santa walking around town where basically introducing us to the the town and uh, the school and that it's Christmas. And of course, you have the wordplay, what a time to be alive, where everybody's going to die after that. Now, the song itself is on the soundtrack, so you can listen to the song. And they said that, well, I heard there's two accounts. One is that they were directly inspired by the opening of La La Land, where what's I don't do you remember the name of the song that opens La La Land? Another Day of Sun. Exactly. So it's like the one where they're stuck in traffic and there's kind of some irony in what they're singing. And it really just introduces us to the musical. It doesn't really tell us directly about the characters or anything, but it's just like the its purpose is to be the banger opener. And first of all, the song is good. I wish they had included it. And second of all, we see zombie Santa a, a couple of times throughout town. And then it ends with zombie Santa popping up. How perfect would it have been if you have this opening number following drunk Santa around and then you see him zombified as the very last shot of the film? I thought that would have been good. They should have kept that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have served as a good through line. Right. A couple of other things specifically about the the songs. Um, So you mentioned Hollywood ending. This might have had my favorite choreography. This is early in the movie where we get the kind of angst about what they're unhappy about and how they're growing up and have to move on and they don't know what's going to come. Um, we get like choreography inside the school cafeteria and they're like swinging around lunch trays and jumping up on tables and stuff. It's a little bit like a stick to the status quo in high school musical. And one interesting thing I learned from the director's commentary on this is that the actress who plays Steph, and again, her name is Sarah Swire. She actually came up with the choreography herself and um, or at least parts of it and was coaching people during the filming for what they could do to spice up the choreography a little bit more. So I thought that was kind of cool, like this actress just showing up and improving the choreography, because I did think the choreography was kind of hit or miss. There's a couple of styles they used a bunch of times. Like one is kind of walking and thumping zombies or maybe just being oblivious to zombies as they walk. And one is kind of standing and shimmying back and forth, but like not too much really interesting choreography, I would say. Right. Yeah, there I didn't find myself like when it was over humming any of the songs either. So. Yeah, the music overall is hit or miss. Um, They were they wanted an 80s pop style like they were intentionally skewing a more theatrical musical style. I think a more theatrical musical style might have worked better because it really did feel like same-ish pop songs that weren't weren't the most interesting. I mean, they weren't that bad. They were kind of catchy and I wasn't like actively thinking, wow, this song is not very good like I have for a couple of the musicals we've watched. (laughs) There's no super duper pooper level bangers. No, not quite. Honestly, my favorite might have been the Christmas means nothing without you, which is the song on the radio at the beginning. And then I think it might also be what plays in the credits. I can't remember, but um, this it does feel like a real Christmas song. Hmm. Yeah, my favorite is definitely the turning my life around the oblivious number 
that one is good too. Definitely agree. And I, I also really like the Soldier at War. So that's the one where uh, Nick, the the D bag X, and his mates are thumping the zombies as they walk through the streets. Yeah, it's like Gaston and his cronies. Right. Now, one tidbit is the the number called "Nothing's Gonna Stop Me Now," which is the moment where Mister Savage, the headmaster is really leaning into his villainy. So this is different from the one where he kind of starts to break bad and has the conflict with the dad that got cut. This is like when he's already completely deranged and has kind of gone insane. According to the commentary, they went back and forth on basically having this be a more subjective vision of insanity with like trippier stuff. And the one thing that they were going to add that they balked at that I wish they had included was having the zombies themselves be like background chorus as we see his slip to insanity. But they wanted to stick to the rule that the zombies themselves weren't singing. Only the humans were singing. I don't know why they had that rule. That would have been hilarious if they had had the zombies doing a chorus number behind this headmaster who's gone deranged with his petty power. I think that was a miss on their part. Yeah. Man, it's like they were right at the door of discovering the brilliance of Disney's zombies, <laughs> but then they held themselves back. Yeah, maybe I'm just projecting Disney's zombies onto this. It could never work to have the zombies. So. <laughs> People wouldn't accept it. Unless. <laughs> oh, one thing I learned that I thought was kind of funny is, so I learned this in the making of documentary that, that was included on the, the Blu-ray I had. When they they hired John McHale to be director based on um, a movie he had made a, about a year earlier, it was like a romantic comedy, and they they just hired him on that basically. And he's like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. But he liked horror movies, he liked teen movies, he liked romances and dramas. He claims that he had never seen a musical before starting to work on this project. Why the hell would you hire a director who's never seen a musical? To be the director of your musical. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you want an outsider. You want somebody who's going to drain the swamp. He said he watched High School Musical and some of Glee. And then he watched some of the classic musicals too. And the one he really latched onto was West Side Story. Now, the, the actors here are obviously musical, theatrical actors. like Particularly Anna, the lead, seems like a kind of classic musical triple threat who definitely has been in probably been like in the musicals from when they were kids and local productions and all sorts of stuff like that. Probably someone who knows her, her canon of musicals. And she was saying the director came up and was like, you guys, I just saw this one West side story. You're not going to believe this. This is such a good movie. They're like, yeah, we've been watching that since we were five years old. Like we know about West side story. <laughs> And imagine all that delivered with a British accent is very funny hearing about this in the, the documentary. But he really liked that one. And the, and the thing that he really liked about it that he wanted to bring to the movie is when it cuts around to different characters in different locations singing. And so there, I think there's two songs that do that. There's the closer like we talked about. And there's one other one. I think it's called Human Voices. Where they're singing about the technology and stuff as things are really going south in the zombie front. 
but I thought that was kind of funny. It's like someone who who's never seen a musical as your director. That's just kind of goofy. A couple of other just minor things that I kind of enjoyed from what I learned. The bit where they go into the Christmas tree lot was inspired by Terry Gilliam, 12 Monkeys. So, Brian, we watched this one. If you remember, like when they go into the building, I'm trying to remember exactly the context for when they do it. But they go to the city and they have to find the building that I think is where like the organization is grouped and it ends up being like a theater or something like that. But is this ringing a bell for you, Brian? Vaguely. Okay. But I I can distinctly remember what this looks like, even though I can't remember where it falls in the plot of 12 Monkeys. And they said that was the visual inspiration. And sure enough, as soon as they said that, I kind of saw it. It's like the way that you kind of have the light blocked by these posters over the window. So the light comes in kind of like uh, these thin streams and it just feels kind of boxed in. I could definitely see the, the connection there. And the one other thing I wanted to talk about is we already brought it up a little bit, but this the zombie musical that the original 2011 short that that I caught up with, I think very much more shows that the pitch was, hey, what if it's High School Musical, but they happen to be zombies? Uh, was that a little bit more clear to you in the, the short, Brian? I think so. I mean, it's it's short for one, obviously. Uh-huh. And so there's not too much more to it than they are at a high school and there's zombies and it's a musical. Like those are the three things that you can convey in 15 minutes and still have some songs in there. Right. Also, the evil school official was more outright sexually predatory. Yes. In the short. Yeah, there's like one or two hints of it with... Arthur Savage, but in the short, it makes clear that like, hey, that's what we're going to do with this crazy headmaster guy. He's going to be a creep on the girls and it's going to be kind of brought to a heightened level because there's zombies around. It also has a couple of the specific cinematic moments that were brought to and in the apocalypse, including there's a zombie sitting on a toilet and it has another thing where she's oblivious, but in this case, it does have the number where they're singing and dancing outside and she's oblivious, but also has it like in the morning when she's getting ready and you can kind of see zombies going through the wind, zombies through the window too. I thought it was pretty cool that you could see like the, the roots of what would come in a, a form that's like clearly made by a college student. Although I'll say it's done pretty well. Uh, They talked a little bit about it in the documentary that one of the things that kind of sold the studio on it is that he was able to make such an impressive short on basically no budget. Like he just kind of invented all the stuff, but it's still, I mean, obviously you can tell it's not a real effects parlor or anything like that working on it, but it looks pretty good for something you would just make as a 21 year old in college, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, well put together and i like that a studio believed in his vision enough to put you know a little more money behind it heck brian that could be you that's right you're getting your filmmaking degree that's exactly right so that was most of the errata that i wanted to bring in okay well now you're gonna teach me about a word dan Uh i thought errata meant mistakes what is what does that mean uh let me look it up 
You're right. It is specifically heirs. I thought it was like... Like ephemera? I guess, ephemera. So the way that I know that is that board games often print errata. I think that's how you say it. Errata or errata? I don't know. Yeah, E-R-R-A-T-A. I know the word. I just, I I don't think it means what you think it means. (laughs) But in the context of board games, it's like explaining things in more detail. So I thought it was like extra stuff interesting but i guess it means specifically correcting mistakes is what it's supposed to do erratum is according to oxford where i just googled it erratum is an error in printing or writing so you're right it's specifically mistakes so what would you say ephemera you think that's the word you would use possibly tidbits yeah i would usually say tidbits i think now that we've gotten through the tidbits let's talk about any good things or not so good things that we we might not have hit yet. So I guess, Brian, what was your take? You kind of opened by saying you thought it was doing too much. Is that uh, an impression that you had that it was overextending itself into its, by my count, five different genres? (laughs) Well, what I thought as they were all piling on was it was kind of like a perfect summary of movies that we've covered, especially like at the Christmas season. Because we've done a lot of musicals, a lot of teen movies, certainly. But also, I mean, we've we've covered quite a few zombie movies. And yeah, I just remember back at our first Christmas season, we did like the high school musical deep dive. And so it felt like a very good Christmas. Oh, I like that. A very good Christmas. That could even be our episode title. And beyond that, my rating like kept going up and down. There were times that it was riding pretty high and then like the seams of the budget would show a bit and it would dip down some so i do have a rating ready to go okay uh but as i was watching i was wondering where i was ultimately gonna land yeah i thought it was a really unique flavor of all the things it did but i also definitely think that by doing so many different things that aren't necessarily that compatible or like all require attention it kind of undercut the way that subsections of those genres would have interacted like if you could have had more of just a teen movie that's a zombie movie you could have leaned into the theme of like when you graduate and leave your home it is in some ways an apocalypse and you like quite literally lose friends here turned into them turning into zombies and stuff i think they could have dug more into that one movie it had me thinking of a lot was that one with the spontaneous combustion. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was just called Spontaneous. Yeah, we talked about that one. That kind of had that theme. Right. I guess I just need to go watch Spontaneous again. And I thought it was a little underwhelming with the Christmas stuff. Like you could have had more of the Krampus type Christmas zombie thrills in there. And yeah. I think it's very much defined by its desire to to be a little bit of everything. But I'll expand a little bit more about that when I give my rating. Was there anything you wanted to to say before we we hopped into rating, Brian, or are you ready to go? I think I'm set. All right. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward the good which is an eight out of eight. So Brian is Anna and the apocalypse from 2017. Good. 
All right. So as I was watching this, I kept thinking, I feel like this amalgam of genres is in some ways tailored to appeal to somebody like me. Like, I feel like I should really, really love a zombie Christmas musical. And maybe because of that, I am going to be a little bit harsh on it. Like, they can't just rely on that and, and count on getting my vote. That said, I really, really love the turning my life around number. I think that's when all the genres are firing on a reasonable number of cylinders. Like, the, the mix kind of works best there. I really love the dance in the cemetery. So where I'm ultimately going to land is a 5 out of 8. A flat good. It's definitely not bad. I'm glad they went out and made this thing. I haven't given a flat 5 in a while, except I think I did give it to one of the Christmas carols last episode. So actually fairly recently I did. But I think that's earned by this one. 5. What about you, Dan? We mentioned early on that this bears a lot of similarity to Shaun of the Dead. And I think this and Shaun of the Dead have a similar flaw, um, or at least a similar uh, trait that I don't like, which is that they're kind of priming us to be comedies. But, you know, in Shakespeare, a tragedy is when everybody dies and a comedy is when everybody gets married and lives happily ever after. So, like, I'm thinking this is a comedy and then... It turns into a really serious, pretty much everybody dies movie. I mean, not everybody dies. A few people survive. But like, I don't know, that just felt like kind of a downer. And I guess that's the nature of trying to do a light movie that turns into a more serious zombie movie to like to try and be both of those things. But I don't exactly like that, uh, that flow. If you're going to be a zombie comedy, I say just go gonzo bananas ape shit like Return of the Living Dead. And in general, I think Anna and the Apocalypse does a kind of mediocre version of most of its genres. Like as a teen drama, it's got interesting characters, but they don't really have enough room to actually develop and develop relationships with each other. As a comedy, it's got some funny segments like the bit where they're walking around under the ball pit, but then they ultimately get a zombie sitting on them. You know, the zombie effects are okay, but it's not like breaking new ground as far as zombie movies go. Like anyone who's seen five or more zombie movies isn't going to be surprised by anything that happens on the zombie front here. Oh, yeah. There's some digital blood, too. I hate digital blood. Like she knocks a snowman's head off with a seesaw and there's just this big spray of digital blood. Yeah. So I do think it makes an interesting flavor with all of them together. I was kind of hovering at a high four, but when I did my deep dive over the past couple days, listened to the director's commentary and heard the passion of the filmmakers and the kind of circuitous route to it getting made, despite the original creator passing away and discussion of some of the, the details and the pointing out some of the performances that were kind of impressive and talking about things they loved and really even just learning a little bit more about some of this stuff that I thought was kind of dumb. Like how did the villain go crazy so fast? Well, there was a song cut where he was going to 
snap. And that would have been good to have that. And why don't I care as much about the relationship between Anna and the dad? Well, there was a song cut for that. And the possibility of that opening banger that got deleted. So I'm going to go from a high four up to a low five. So I'm with you on this, basically sharing your reaction that on paper, I really should like it. It just didn't fully register, but it still leaves an overall positive, barely positive impression just because there's, it's doing a lot of interesting things at once. Yeah. It almost makes me feel that whatever I gave Zombies 2018, I should bump that up a rating. I think you officially did. Okay. All right. Maybe I did. So I think you have them at the same. I mean, I don't know if Zombies 2018 is better than this. It, It has its own distinct set of flaws and unique flavor and strengths, but... I think honestly putting them on a fairly similar field is is not too far off for me. Could I add both of those at a five? So, okay, yeah, I I think that's fair. But that's Anna and the Apocalypse. So Brian, we're going to be watching a movie of your choice next week. So what will you have us watch and discuss next? That's right. So this one was sprung on me a little bit. I mean, listeners aren't going to know because usually we go Dan me, Dan me, Dan me. But the scuttlebutt was that much of this month we were going to have guest episodes. And so I didn't have one in the chamber immediately. So while I was watching this movie, I was thinking, oh, maybe we could watch Krampus. But I'm not 100% on that. And then I was thinking of other maybe Christmas horror movies could be good. And then Bob from Sesame Street died. And I thought, you know what? I think it's time we pull out... Elmo Saves Christmas from 1996. And for one that I haven't seen, I want to also tack on Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, which I believe comes from 1978. So the pretty early days, uh, apparently Bob McGrath said it was his favorite Sesame Street project. And one of the songs from Christmas Eve on Sesame Street gets recycled in Elmo Saves Christmas. Okay, cool. We've been circling around Elmo Saves Christmas. It's come up a couple times, so I'm glad we're going to finally talk about it. I know it's one that you enjoy. And what, what's the name of the other one again? Can you say it one more time? Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Brian. I'm ready to tackle it. You, got, you know I like Muppet Christmas. Yeah. All right. Well. All right. Well, join us again next time, listeners, for some of that. Have a good one. 